0: Hey everybody, welcome to Battles of Kingsgrave and the first proper Discussion of an Agatha Christie book, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Definitely the book that made her famous and certainly one of the highest regarded of her novels. Uh, My name is Mina 007. Apologies if I sound a little weird today. I have COVID, boo, for the second time. So I'm a little bit locked up. I am joined today by Hannah. Abe, Shadow Baby. I also have COVID. No, we are sisters through (laughs) viral infection. We are also joined. Joined by a remarkably fit and healthy, yay, Xander.
1: Hello, yes, uh, remarkably healthy, somewhat fit uh, Xander. And also Lord Baron on the VOK verse.
0: Fantastic. So I thought we would start off... Um, just by getting a little bit of background from both of you on whether you've read Agatha Christie before, whether you're aficionados, and what your uh, rating is for this novel, this your lemon cake rating. As uh, Zanda, let's let's start with you.
1: I have never read any of her novels or stories. And if I've seen any adaptions of them, I don't recall them. So I went into this pretty, pretty blind. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, probably as we'll get into when it first started, I was I was like, oh, that's a, you know, it's a bit kind of corny, stereotypical detective novel. And then I realized, you know, it's such it, it's one of the ones that set the standards for it. So then when I remembered that, it was such a blast.
0: Awesome! I'm so pleased. And how many lemon cake ratings?
1: Uh, I give it five out of five just because ooh, great. Five out of five. Poor old mustaches.
0: (laughs) Excellent. And H, um, how about you? I discovered Agatha Christie.
2: Well, um, people would say the poem from, and then there were none, like the Ten Little Indians poem, around me all the time. And uh, my sister's high school, I believe, they had done a production of Arsenic and Old Base and that at one point. Just kind of familiar with the story. But then when I went to homeschool for high school, uh, the gal that was our instructor, she would start every morning by reading a novel aloud. And she was a big fan of Dickens, but this was also one that she read aloud to us. And when we were done, it was the first and only time that we had done one aloud that I asked if I could have the copy and read myself again. And uh, so I've I've reread that one several times. And a couple of years ago, I decided to start reading more of her stuff, and I plowed through like I think every Hercule Pro novel now. Um, I've read Endless Night a couple times and uh, the ABC murders as well. So N- uh, none of them, miss Marple. I have a hard copy of a Miss Marple around here, but I started reading it, and it just it didn't do it for me. so i'm not I'm not really a Miss Marple fan, but um. That
0: it Italian is I don't know. <laughs> People do have one or the other. Like I was always a massive Poirot and very reluctant on the Marbles. So I read all the Agatha. Well, not all of them. I read a lot of Agatha Christie when I was in university studying for my final exams that's what I would do one afternoon a week was buy an Agatha Christian and read it just to relax and it was in no particular order because I just bought what was ever whatever paperback was in the shop and then had a giant tub of nachos <laughs> I would read my okay. Agatha Christie but I always loved the Hercule Poirot this has always been one of my favorite it's probably not in my top top tier but it's definitely a four out of five uh, Hercule Poirot moustaches for me um, Hannah, where would you rate this amongst all the poros that you love? Is this one of your favorites, or is this kind of like just a good, decent, um, I'm
2: gonna give this one three out of five little gray cells, uh, simply because it's it's not the most complex, like as as far as the mystery goes. I feel like there are better ones, and to have his detective skills on display as well are um, there are better examples. So it's it's still fun, but it's not. It's not the thinker that uh, much of, of her other ones featuring him are, so. It's ah, so interesting
0: okay. because I think some people would say it is one of the more intricate but maybe less exciting because the setting is just an English village it's not one of her glamorous foreign ones or okay so we're going to get into discussing this with full spoilers listeners so if you haven't read it go off and read it but just to maybe whet your appetite um, here's just a little potted summary sans spoilers um, to get you interested so The Murder of Roger Ackroyd was published in 1926 So 96 years ago, if my maths is correct, um, in June of that year, it's her seventh novel published. It's the third Hercule Poirot novel. So already he's becoming her big selling crime detective. It's really interesting. In 1972, so toward the end of her career, she was written a letter by a Japanese reader who asked what her top 10 favourite novels were over the course of her career. And she actually included Murder of Roger Ackroyd, she said it was a general favourite, like she just liked it in an all round way, whereas others in the top 10, including Endless Night, Hannah, um, she gave very specific reasons of why she liked them. And it is often included in, if you Google like, you know, top 10 Agatha Christie's to read, this will be one of them. So to whet your appetite, listeners, um, this is a novel that is set in an English village contemporaneously. It is written by or the, the point of view is from Dr. Shepherd, the local village doctor. And it starts out with him being called out because Mrs. Ferrars, an attractive widow, has overdosed on sleeping draught. Uh, Dr. Shepherd's sister Caroline suspects that Mrs. Ferris has actually committed suicide through guilt because a year ago her husband uh, was found dead. He was an abusive alcoholic and everyone suspects that Mrs. Ferrars poisoned him with arsenic. Interestingly, Mrs. Ferrars apparently has left no suicide note. Later, the wealthy but miserly industrialist Roger Ackroyd of the title invites Dr. Shepherd to dinner. He's evidently very distressed. Um, His niece, Flora, announces her engagement to his wayward stepson, Roger Payton. Flora's mother, who is Roger Ackroyd's sister-in-law, is financially dependent on Roger and is very anxious he should settle money on Flora before she marries. After dinner, Ackroyd reveals to Shepherd that his now dead fiance, Mrs. Ferrars, told him she was being blackmailed the day before. Blackmailed for killing her husband, which she did do. The evening mail arrives as Ackroyd is speaking to Dr. Shepherd, and there is a letter written by his dead fiance that obviously she mailed before she committed suicide. And Shepherd, Dr. Shepherd wants Roger Ackroyd to read it aloud to him, but he refuses because it clearly is going to contain the blackmailer's name. So the doctor leaves, only to be called back later by the butler. The butler te- telephones him, says, you better come quick. Roger Ackroyd has been murdered. So the murder happens very quickly in this book, sort of 50 pages in and a 300 page book. Um, the butler will then deny making that phone call. But anyway, um, Dr. Shepard is on the scene very quickly. Roger Ackroyd has been stabbed to death in his study. Peyton, the stepson, has disappeared. And Flora, Peyton's fiance, calls in the recently retired Ecuparo to clear her fiance's name so that that really sets everything in motion and the tone it's less funny than some of the books that um, I've discussed in the mini pods it's not got that pg woodhouse sort of air that a lot of them have these these wacky adventure stories it's far more straightforward far more technical and procedural um, apart from a game of mahjong which I thought was quite funny so we're now going to get into the book (laughs) with full spoilers so if you haven't read it or don't want to be spoiled please dial away now Right, the boys you don't girls. find
2: the introduction of Poirot in this one funny.
0: Oh, what throwing the marrow <laughs> over the hedge, Yeah, that yeah,
2: is- I, I'm sorry, I feel like
0: it's really cartoonish, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I mean, like, because Poro is not made for marrows, he's not made for gardening. The concept of him retiring, I mean, we meet him in 1922 and he's already retired, and she's still writing about him in 1972, it's hilarious. It so, let's get into the plot and the twist. How did you guys find the plot twist, Zander? You had not read this. Did you feel cheated and outraged? Or did you feel it was just very cool? Or for a modern reader, he's used to lots of people doing this. Did you feel okay? Well, I saw that coming.
1: Oddly enough, with the modern sensibility, I actually didn't see it coming because again, like forgetting that you know, it's it's a book that pretty much laid groundwork for this kind of story. You know, I the tropes weren't necessarily like as expected. So I actually really enjoyed uh, finding out. who not spoiler right for spoilers.
0: Yeah. Well yeah. no, we can do corners in this but yeah. Okay. And when and so when you found out you didn't did you then go back and think, oh yeah, it was laid out. It's just that I did you feel it played oh, fair? Yeah,
1: it, it it was because when 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 you do find out, um you know, right before the ep- epilogue when Pore um confronts them. Uh which which scene was it? It was when uh, in hindsight I was looking back, it was when they were in the study and Poro was asking about the seat. Yeah. Uh, the doctor was it was the, the, the time that that was wrong. And I was I remembered at that time reading that part, I was like, Oh, what? that's kinda weird. But then in hindsight I'm like, Oh my god, I was right there with
0: them. Yeah. And and again and again Porre says to everyone you know the phone call is important and then when you think about it what is the point of the phone call it's to get the doctor on the scene so that there are hints and clues it is interesting like the idea of the narrator being a murderer is used in man in the brown suit so one of the prior stories in that story it wasn't just the murderer who, who wrote it she shifts different POVs but we do that's the first time you see that idea of someone kind of being a narrator but through omission through not quite saying everything how do you feel about it? Is is this one of the reasons you rate it just three out of five?
2: Compared to, to some of her other stuff that she'll do later, it felt a little contrived, Does that makes sense.
0: It is an intellectual exercise, right? And in, in fact, um, she'd used it before herself in Man in the Brown Seat, but it was suggested to her by two separate people. So her brother-in-law had said, see if you can pull off doing a narrator murderer. And that was also suggested to her, weirdly, by Lord Mountbatten of Burma. <laughs> So she was obviously already moving in quite, like... Uh, Highfalutin circles. Lord Mountbatten of Burma is, you watch The Crowns. Yeah, he's in there. He's Prince Charles's godfather and Prince Philip's guardian. Um, so, yeah, connected like, oh, to okay. the Queen. Anyway, so the, the, I think people had suggested it to her. like, could you pull this off? It did cause outrage at the time. One of her um, <laughs> most biographers, John Curran, calls it a civilized outrage. So, this very kind of like, you're not playing fair. With it? Yeah, I know. But it is the thing that brought her fame. I think before. Then she was kind of like one of a series of novelists who would have be been known. But this is the one that really, really made her famous. And I do think it's I'll cool. tell you why I, I think I don't
2: like it as much. I don't think she likes it as much. Really? But I think it shows in her writing. Just, I think there are, as we go through this series, we'll find ones where it's like, you could tell she's just have getting it. off of it, you know? And I don't think this is one of those ones for her. I think this this one feels a little more like a paycheck. Um, And that's okay. It's not like it's terrible. It just doesn't have some of the passion that some of her other works have. That, and no matter how many times I read some of these other ones, it's like always blows my mind. Even though I know then the writing itself is just dripping with, you know, a lot of a lot of depth and dynamics and passion. And this one's a little just. I don't know, straightforward. Maybe it is because it's kind of insular,
0: you know. Maybe that it was for the paycheck. I think, like the other thing to note is that she had this contract with a publisher that had really exploited her. And I think the, the, the novel before this, *The Secret of Chimneys*, you can tell she definitely dashed it off to be the last one on that contract. This is the first one with Collins, and she'll stay with Collins forever. And I think. In a sense, it's the opposite. I think that the style is more flat and not as zippy and zany and fun as some of the early ones because she was really like just concentrating so hard on the technical intricacies of it, um, mm-hmm. which is maybe why it reads drier. I don't know, Xander. What do you think? You're that you're a first-time reader. Did it come across as sort of more dry or job worthy to you, or workmanlike? Is maybe the phrase. I don't know. It, it, it
1: does seem a little dry to me, but I didn't think of it as a negative part um i again because it's all fresh eyes for me i kind of just assumed it's the style of the time it's because of who agatha chrissy is and who, where she comes from her background um so i kind of enjoyed the dryness too a bit said, uh, there are parts that kind of are just like yeah let's let's go on you know this is just a little boring but most of the time i thought it was fine even even um you know you said it's a little more straightforward and not as humorous as the other poro novels um but i found at least the one the ones i can catch the that dry british humor in it um really good you know especially like you said having poro there in retirement and trying to be a gardener when he's much too flamboyant of a man to be that person
0: yeah (laughs) It is it is hilarious. I mean, I think there are is moments where that Christie comedy sneaks through. The, the marrow tossing is one of them. A lot of <laughs> Shepherd's like, sly little comments about his sister and stuff are really good. I think the Mahjong match is just hilarious when everyone's punging and unpunging and chowing and, you know, like, <laughs> and then to have all the information given at the same time, I thought was hilarious. It's just weird reading this in chronological order because the, the two novels that preceded it were her, kind of adventure thriller mystery novels and they're just so much faster and so much funner and they really do read like pg woodhouse i mean they they really are almost as much comic novels as they are mysteries whereas this is very much this is a mystery it's a puzzle book go figure it out use your brain um, which
2: is maybe that's why i don't like it as much because it doesn't have captain hastings
0: Oh, Captain Hastings, man. So, Xander, you won't be aware of this. Like, basically, in the first two Poirot novels, there's a sidekick to Hercule Poirot called Captain Hastings, who's kind of like the Watson to his Sherlock Holmes. And the man is basically quite stupid and a bit of an ass. And she hates him, so she gets rid of him after two novels. She she sends him <laughs> off to the Argentine. And in every in every movie adaptation and TV adaptation, they keep Hastings in. And it's like, so people think he's in every novel, but he really isn't. The one thing to say, Xander, is that in this novel, and maybe Hannah this influences your score, I don't know, in general Poirot tries to use logical clues and psychological and emotional clues, like w- does it make sense for the person to do this thing? Whereas in this novel I felt it was much more about material clues, like so the chair position, the fake phone call, the goose quill, the wedding ring, it's, more, it's much more Sherlock Holmesy. but ah, maids only wear cambric fabric and their, their things aren't starch so it's more like a Holmes than a psychological novel in some ways
2: yeah probably that's a good point yeah it's just i don't know there's something about it to me it's like not it's not as intricate
1: you know you you read the first couple chapters like the first chapter or the second chapter it's it's all set up so it's a bit you
2: know let's
1: get on the- story kind of attitude, but at, at the same time that was when I was thinking, you know, oh, this kind of cheesy, kind of pulpy, you know, this is, these detective stories, they're all the same, and then once the story actually starts get, to get going, and then I recontextualize it, remembering it was written in 1926, and how I think what, what really got me into it was almost how modern it felt, but at the same time, at an almost reachable bygone era. era
0: yeah, um, I think Yeah I think that's pretty important actually I think a lot of people because they watch these TV adaptations think all her novels take place in these pretty pretty little English villages and that these are very neat old-fashioned quaint novels but actually a lot of what's in them is very modern and she was quite modern and progressive for her time so I'm very kind of like not cynical but kind of straightforward about character motivation um and reading them again, I have been struck by just how how progressive she was for you know like the mid nineteen twenties. Um, I put down like I mean we can do characters or themes, but I think one of the things in the in the themes that I find really interesting is the way in which she talks about addiction. So you've got the the husband of Miss Missus Ferrars and the first wife of um, Roger Ackroyd both died through alcoholism. And you see the impact of that on the lives of the people around them. And then you have the son of the housekeeper, who is a heroin addict, using his goose quill. I guess that's what you did before hypodermic syringes. Um, and like it's, and you see the impact on the family. And it's really interesting. Like we can get into it with the adaptation. Like a lot of people leave out the drug stuff, but it's a really big part of the novel, um, which I think is I kind actually, of- I
1: really appreciated that very forward-thinking realistic writing and showing um because that and that's part of why it, it, it feels like such a modern read because um, a lot of those novels like um the great gatsby was written what 29 so only a few years later and you can read that but it feels like a novel written in the 20s where this feels like a novel that could have been written yes
0: yeah i agree and i think what's really interesting about the way she treats addiction all the way through her novels So Hannah, I don't know if you remember Death on the Nile. and We don't want to spoil the plot there because that's on our list. But she she treats addiction quite sympathetically. I mean, she shows in a very unflinching way the impact on others. So the impact on a mother here or on a daughter elsewhere and people who sometimes look stern and tense. It's because they're covering up for addiction or dealing with like the impact in their family. But she doesn't really judge addicts she just says this is this is what they are and how they're living it's it's quite non-moralizing which i find really shocking for the time and really cool to just say look, this is part of life this is part of civilized life that there are going to be people with issues and you know this is it's going to take a toll on people yeah um she's also incredibly clear-sighted about money and a lot of her novels the motives either sex or money like sexual passion um money is often a motive and she's very clear-sighted about you know characters needing it um and in particular women needing both money and sex like not so much in this novel but in a lot of her other novels she has she objectifies men she has women who are very unabashed about their sexual desires and really like fancying good-looking guys um and approaching them you know very boldly like she's very sex positive for women which in 1926 is kind of crazy and even in this book like a lot of people forgive ralph payton like he's actually a nice guy he's a bit feckless but he's really good looking <laughs> like at one point poirot says he looks like a greek god and Christie Christie herself you know very much believed in a healthy sex life. She believed that women should get, you know, sexual satisfaction just like men, and was very honest about what really motivates people, which I kind of appreciate.
2: I think Chrissy's one of these interesting people in general, whose life spans across both world wars and uh, living in a society that has boys coming home from both world wars. And you can see the effects of that in her works from both time periods in the 20s and the 40s. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not just addiction that she's really talking about in many cases. It's also PTSD, which they obviously didn't have a name for at the time. Um, But she's sort of very... A uh, matter of facts about it in her writing, and and like you said, it's just, this is a facet of life. She's not making a judgment or casting aspersions on the behavior. She's just living in a world where this behavior is exhibited. By people around her for whatever reasons. And I think she weaves in her real world experiences, shared collective experiences of her society into her novels really flawlessly in that way.
0: I completely agree. And that's why I'm loving doing this reread because it's just a way of looking at how society really was and changed as these mega events happened. This is actually the first of her novels where no one mentions that they were a nurse during the war. And I think maybe because you're getting long enough away from the world one but it is interesting that just this matter-of-fact treatment of addiction and self-medication i think comes from her being a trained dispenser of of drugs in hospitals and and having this kind of like really matter-of-fact attitude to mental and physical health which gives it a modern air like she's not squeamish um in any way right. um, you
2: know and actually the excitement it's a- of mental health in society back then you wonder if she were to write about it so nonchalantly how prevalent it must have been among people coming back from the war, even even women who had served what they might have seen and uh, not really having a way to process it necessarily. I mean, psychiatry is still in its early early infancy here. So,
0: but even like the fact that in the in the novel before this. The Secret of Chimneys, there is a character who is posing as a tramp and she talks about the fact there are so many demobilized and then unemployed men who've come out as soldiers and come home and have nothing and just end up on the streets. Like there's always these like little these little things that are going on that show you what's happening in the world. And I think when it comes to the money motive, both um, major blunt and um, Dr. Shepherd's have lost money in schemes, like get-rich-quick schemes, kind of like the crypto of their day, maybe. And this is 1926, right? This is the era of the stock market starting to go super crazy um, and have its kind of run-up that would end in the Wall Street crash in 1929. So even in this light way, she's saying, look, sensible middle-class people are kind of putting their equivalent of 401ks into these crazy Ponzi schemes and getting swindled. Um, so... I think she's like, for, for someone who people think of as this like quaint little Downton Abbey writer, she's really tackling all the kind of financial uncertainty and kind of all, all the latest social changes can like come up in her books, I always feel.
2: Right. Yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of remarkable the way she writes. And, and again, speaking of Downton Abbey, she's also writing this in, an, in that era where, uh, you know, there aren't as many people in service that that's sort of dying out. And uh, more modern technologies and factories are starting to become, you know, where people are in their livings and things. And not only in real life is she carving this path for herself that is, you know, she's not a Bronte sister. She's not Jane Austen. She's writing real stories about real people and she's publishing them under her
0: name. Yeah. And she's commercially and- successful, right? I mean, she, she's earning a bunch of money from serialization. She bought a house, she's bought a car. I mean, she's the breadwinner in the family, which is already right. like kind of awesome. Another of the themes I thought which is quite interesting to discuss probably kind of fits with that idea of there's less people in service and there's the rise of the industrialists is a big theme in Agatha Christie are imposters or people who are trying like so hard to be something that it you can't help but help that know that it's fake. So she says of Roger Ackroyd, Ackroyd always interested me by being a man more impossibly like a country squire than any other country squire could be. In other words, she's basically saying he wants to be like the, the country squire in Downton Abbey like the Aristo but he's really just a kind of working class industrialist He's made a bunch of money So he kind of does an impression of a country squire. Um, She often has people doing impressions of things. So then Ursula Braun is actually a well-born woman who's become a parlourmaid, And you know Colonel Carter at the Mahjong game that they all know hasn't really been to China, but pretends he has. Um, And she uses this again and again, like Death on the Nile, there's a character, well, a couple of characters actually, who aren't what they seem to be. Maybe Xander and also Hannah, what did you make of the ending? Because another theme in Agatha Christie's books is the idea of natural justice, which is the idea Idea that she often doesn't turn the murderer into the police. She often gives them a way out. So here, she basically has Poirot say to Doctor Shepherd, "I want you to commit suicide and write um, a confession that that basically gets Ralph Payton out of trouble." And I'm gonna hush it up, basically to make sure your sister can still hold her head up high in the village. So I like, but, like this is gonna to be hushed be
2: okay up. DSA. Okay, Okay. <laughs> if you or a loved one are dealing with suicidal ideation, please get help.
0: Yeah, we should actually. I'll put a thought of this about suicide.
1: This is the one thing that I didn't quite like. Um, I did. It, I did like that he was like, hey. I want you to do this so that she's okay, but I don't like that he's essentially like, "Hey, kill your sister." Be better. Just because um, it's very hard to write suicide in a plot that makes it where it doesn't feel like ran out of ideas and are like, Oh, let me just have this character commit suicide, and you know, because um, that—that for me, that's just a—that's a very hard. To- topic to frame appropriately regardless of whatever the media is
0: yeah and i think this is where as readers a hundred years later we probably i mean as hannah's psa shows we have far more sensitivity around the topic than maybe her matter of factness at the time would have allowed for um and I think for her writing at the time like at, at the time in England if you were found guilty of murder which you would have been then you would be hanged so I think Poirot's point is that you're going to die anyway but this way saves your sister. like she's much more she I mean there's two types of justice right there's justice for the person who was killed which is part of like a criminal court and making it public but there's also justice or maybe natural justice for the people who are left like I think she's much more concerned with the people who are left being allowed to live good lives than she is about like the person's dead anyway so does it matter if you hung or commit suicide but i can see why it's problematic hannah what what do you think
2: this is probably one of the things that made me kind of bounce back and forth between a three and and four rating uh I do think it is brilliant writing. It's not, you know, and it's sort of like the anti, uh, and if you've ever seen the movie clue with Tim Curry, it's like, yeah. (laughs) And then they splash the photos around the papers and all those things. And, and then, you know, there's a trial and, a. And that puts a strain on the system. And, uh, you know, it, it, it still is justice. I think that especially Americans have a hard time uh, recognizing justice that's not handled by our criminal justice system or someone with a badge. So, um, you know, a moral victory is still a victory to me. And I think that's more to her point. I definitely don't think anyone should be encouraging people to commit suicide I would argue that Frobo has a little bit of blood on his hands now but um I I do sort of understand where it comes from and I think there's a it's one of my favorite parts of this book is when he's gathered everyone around and he gives this you know speech it's to the murderer I speak now you know the murderer is in this room this is yeah. who I'm speaking to just a really dark speech that he gives, and it, you know, I always imagine it was sort of like uh, Rachmaninoff's Symphony <laughs> 29 <laughs> playing underneath the background, you know, um, yeah. and sort of like a push-in on him. It was like very, very dark, uh, and and so I think that he's She's given the doctor now a couple of chances to come forward and handle it in a different manner and and make it, you know, widely known. Um, And I think I think that what she is saying without saying it is that uh Poirot knew who it was way before he gives that oh, speech
0: yeah. there's a moment so, so
2: given some outlets right yeah. and, you, yeah. and you can so see he, there's
0: a moment halfway through when Poirot starts taking Dr. Shepard less with him and and going off and doing his own stuff and Dr. Shepard even remarks on it so you can almost see the point halfway through when Poirot realizes it's him but just hasn't proved it yet is his um I mean, I I guess we can get into the character of Poirot because actually it speaks of of arrogance and I think as we get further through these novels, the Poirot ones that we're going to read, you'll see Poirot dispensing his own kind of justice, and it culminates, or it gets more and more developed. And people do—I mean, people have written whole essays and PhDs on on Agatha Christie's concept of justice. But to me, it's almost like Poirot thinks he's God. He thinks he's kind of above the criminal justice system, and you know, he is the final judge and jury. And if he's satisfied that justice has been done, that's fine. And I'm like, well, it just speaks to his arrogance. I mean, it's quite a thing, right, to to put yourself in judgment over someone to the point of ordering their death. It's actually quite sinister. Although I don't think it, it I don't think Agatha Christie means it to feel sinister, but I think it's quite sinister.
1: Um, she writes it more. Um, it's a, it's not as menacing as it like you're saying now. It actually is because he is essentially just taking the right hand justice of God and his own mainly. Um, but I think she does try to write it as like, oh, it's just. He's so hubris and flamboyant that, of course, this, you know, this is how he would, he would love um, what he's actually doing.
0: Yeah, it's such a weird one. Well that speaks to Poirot's character. Um, who who were the other characters that you liked or didn't like? Or did you find them all just cogs in the puzzle, the puzzle wheel? Sander, any characters that stood out to you, including, I guess this is your first brush with Poirot. Do you find him compelling? Do you understand why he became this super famous popular um, character
1: so i'm gonna put that on hold for a second i'm not gonna lie most of the characters characters i kind of were just viewing as pieces of the chapter.
0: that's okay uh, I, I think he may offer actor of Christie in this one
1: <laughs> right right i did i did enjoy dr shepherd um i do think he was he is a good Narrator and PLB choice, um, especially because he is the murderer. Um, use, like using the suicide note as the epilogue was a great choice too. Um, but with Pearl, he he just seems very fun, fun and um, it definitely makes me want to read more
0: oh, good.
1: with him because um, I don't I don't know why he became you know Superman, but I definitely enjoy his extravagance and almost his hate of loving that he does it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> no, he certainly he certainly is a character. I mean, like to the at the entrance of Amaro over the garden hedge, his panickyness, his arrogance. But again, but he does have his softer side, doesn't he? Papa Poirot, who kind of basically is a matchmaker for Major Blunt and Flora. He does like to see people happily married and in love by the end. He's got- yeah he's got his soft side uh my favorite character is actually, loves love. sorry i
2: was i was just saying he, he loves love that's a common theme through all of them
0: yeah he loves love and he believes in the power of love right he believes in the power of love both in motivating murder and bad stuff but also in its power to redeem like he believes that a wayward man or woman can be redeemed by a good marriage so in that way he's quite conservative and quite naive i guess um my favourite character is Caroline Shepherd, the sister, who, uh, Dr. Shepherd, this is drying Lashima, says that if she had a coat of arms, the animal would be the mongoose rampant. <laughs> and this is my favorite quote probably in the whole book he says caroline can do any amount of finding out by sitting placidly at home i suspect the servants and tradesmen constitute her intelligence core when she goes out it is not to gather intelligence but to spread it (laughs) it's just so brilliant and she is apparently the precursor to mrs marple the little old lady who sits at home and observes all observes all the information figures everyone out
2: (laughs) Anyone
0: with a favorite well, I Yeah, I do agree with that.
2: I kind of like, even though we don't really like get to quote know him, the snatches that we do get of Roger Ackroyd, I actually really like. Yeah, him. I agree. With that.
1: I completely agree. It's almost a shame he was killed off 20 pages.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Even though absolutely, I, uh, including his best mate, Hector Blunt, thinks he's weird about money and tight and that he drives people to thievery. You blame them, not him. You think he's being maligned after death, maybe?
2: Yeah, a little bit. Well, I just I don't know. He feels like this like eccentric person who must be fascinating. You know what I mean? Like, um, and this particular book of hers isn't as uh, profiling the victim driven as some of her other ones where you get the victim is a little bit more flushed out. Train. as a character. Um, so I think it's sort of, she did a good job of kind of leaving me wanting more in that way. Uh, I, and I think this is why for me, the the book on a whole isn't one of my favorites, is the rest of them seem more or less like plot devices, you know, at least with like Captain Hastings, it's, it, it's right there. He, he is supposed to be the one asking the stupid questions. And, He's the one bouncing uh, ideas off to be dismissed and things. We don't really have that person really in this one. You don't don't have a strong voice of the reader like you do with some of her other novels where, uh, you know, it's not spoilers, but even on uh, Murder on the Orient Express, you have the... Like the bellhop at one point is is sort of playing that, fulfilling that role, like asking the question you would be asking as the reader uh, and things. So I think there's a little, almost too much cloak and dagger with the plot, if that makes sense, in this one. And it's because at the end you realize, oh, it's an unreliable narrator. And basically what we've been reading this whole time is one long suicide note. Sad. Yeah,
0: I think that's all. All absolutely fair. I think it is. It's one of like. There's always this balance in Christie. Some of her novels, no one gets murdered for forever, but you really get to know the characters, and that's kind of an advantage. And there's some of them like this, like the murder happens really quickly, and then you find you haven't got us into the character, and you're just into the puzzle. Um, and I think this definitely falls into that latter category. The one last thing I wanted to point out to the listener is that the character of Ralph Payton is really interesting. And I think that one of the things, although he's off stage for most of this book, one of the things I've learned having read the previous novels that she wrote they always feature a ralph payton character um who is a bit feckless um kind of hasn't really kind of figured out what to do in life runs through money but is really charming and really loved and everyone wants to believe the best of them and this character is i believe based on agatha christie had a big brother called monty and monty um was exactly like ralph payton he was super charming super good-looking but was kicked out of his high school fought in a war like ralph payton who fought in world war one um the brother fought in the Boer war kind of redeemed himself a little bit through that but when he came out didn't really kind of get a proper job and was always sponging money off people and but was super charming and everyone totally totally loved him yeah monty chris monty um ended up just dying really young kind of dissipated but it's fascinating to me that if you read the books reading leading up to this like man in the brown suit with anthony k the secret of chimneys um there's always a character that's basically monty but monty gets a good end like monty ends up marrying a good woman and ends up rich it's almost like she's trying to like write a happy ending for her brother that he or excusing him saying i know he's kind of feckless but he's really lovely <laughs> like he doesn't have a mean bone in his body he's just a penis- big <laughs> yeah really it's really moving i find um yeah i mean right. yeah i've never thought of that before that's that's true yeah it never really it never occurred to me until i read them all in order and i was like oh my god this character just appears again and again and again like she's working through her grief Okay, so as a new reader, Zander, did anything in this book, um, Hannah, as an American, as a modern woman, did anything other than the kind of flippant treatment of suicide strike you as, oh, that doesn't read too well with the benefit of a hundred years?
1: Goes back to uh, something we were talking about earlier. Um, She really, really does have that feminist um, suffragette kind of mindset and because it's so, you know, damn near 100 years ago, it's it's really it's really amazing to realize how forward thinking she was as a woman um, in her position, in her time and how well that still can translate to the modern times.
0: Yeah,
1: the Only downside is there are certain hiccups. Um, you know, it's like if you watch a movie from the 80s and certain things don't age well, but then you have to remember, like, well, it's not necessarily the fault of the creator or author or writer. Um, it's kind of just what to them was, just, well,
0: you know, you, yeah.
1: you can't fault them for being ignorant kind of thing.
0: And if anything, I think she was probably better than her time, but she still was of her time, right? So you can't oh escape God. some of the prejudices that were there. So this book is actually better than most that have run up to this one, where which uh, have some really egregious kind of racial stuff in. but. There is, um, there's a throwaway line from Major Blunt's Hector, where he says, you know, someone dragged me to the opera. It was worse racket than the natives make with their tom-toms. So I was like, oh God. And with a lot of Agatha Christie, you don't know if that's what she thinks or if she's just satirizing pompous colonial people that she's met. I think with that line, she's probably just pastiching kind of, you know, big game hunters from Africa with that comment um she has a lot of people in the village criticize paro or not take him seriously because he's foreign so you know when they're playing mahjong or you know little little lines like why should why should this little upstart of a foreigner make such fuss or you know people are criticized for being french like at one person, one point someone says um, i read now of young girls you know being jewel thieves and and caroline says oh but surely french girls not english girls you know there there are just little and you never know if Africa's just kind of taking the piss out of small-minded people in English villages or whether she kind of agrees with it.
1: And I, I think that's the hard distinction to make because obviously none of us, you know, were adults in the mindset in 1926. So it's it's harder for us to understand when she's joking and when she's being serious about those things.
2: Yeah. Oh, I, I feel like it's her... If you notice... These things don't come from Hercule Poirot. They always come from people who are suspects. Yeah. And so I think it's really telling that she doesn't feel this way. She is villainizing. Like any one of these people could be the villain. And here's where it won't feel so uncomfortable when you find out they are because she's planting little seeds of um well they're not that great of a person yeah. and i think that's how she views the world i think is reflected in the way her hero behaves
0: yeah because he himself i mean what was really fascinating reading the first poirot novel um so if you're inspired and to go back and read the mysterious affair at spells which is another sort of country village murder and re- i think quite well done um is that oh, he's I a, love that yeah he's a belgian refugee because it's set during the war it's actually set during world war one and he's a refugee from belgium and, it's, you know, I was reading it just as Ukrainian refugees were coming over into Europe and he just felt it was so of its time. And, you know, he's being housed with a bunch of other Belgians and temporary accommodation. And um, there's a great deal of kind of sympathy for his situation, which I think is really ahead of its time, too. However, uh, the one thing that I think we can't um, absolve her of, but is of her time is a kind of lazy anti-Semitism, which I find really fascinating in her novels. That it's quite it's quite more pronounced in some of the prior ones, but even here, there's this throwaway line where um, the sister-in-law, Mrs. Ackroyd, is telling or confiding to Doctor. Shepard that. Basically, she was trying to borrow against the future will of Roger Ackroyd, and she fell into a scheme um, by two men who appeared to be Scottish. And um, Dr. Shep said they are usually Scotch gentlemen, but I suspect a Semitic strain in their ancestry. In other words, people who are good with people in Agatha Christie who are very rich or good with money tend to be Jewish. And in this case, people who are swindling money are Jewish. And there is, I think, a lazy anti-Semitism in her. We'll get to like the 30s when it stops, because I think she realises where it's going to go. There's a really interesting meeting. Um, She meets an archaeologist who is, I think, German or Austrian in 1932. And they're having this perfectly friendly conversation. And suddenly they start talking about something like a a dig in Israel or something. Well, it's not Israel yet, but a dig in the Middle East. And he says, oh, the Jews will all have to be exterminated. This is in 1932. And she writes in her memoir, right. that's when I suddenly realized, oh, my God, like, we can have casual anti Semitic Like, I think it's the first time she realized that she had been, as England was at that point, just casually anti-Semitic. And that, shit, I need to stop now because I need to self-reflect because this is not good. If this is where it's going to go. And then, she, then it really conspicuously doesn't happen in her books after that. So, um, kind of, there you go. great that's we, good, right? I mean, that like, that... It's that is so important. Yeah, but it is cringy to read it in these early books and it's it's far worse than the prior three or four that I've read. I mean, it, this is quite mild, just one throwaway line. Uh, but it's there. I mean, she's off her time, like you say, Xander, and we can't, I mean, I think we can't, I don't think we excuse it, but we understand it. And I think it just makes these books, as you say, Hannah, someone writing from 1922 to the 70s just gives us a view of how prevailing middle-class English attitudes changed over that time. Um, and that's kind of an, a really interesting social document, if nothing else.
1: See, I like, um, when, yeah, cause that's exactly what it is. It's just a social document. Um, and that's why something like that, I like to compare it, although he was a bit intentional with it how the Mark Twain books were written. He specifically read them, how they were, how they acted at the time, how they talked at the time, you know, and then reading them nowadays is well, very uncomfortable, but it's it's very important um, because like any history, art is just as important to say, so you have to read it in that very uncomfortable but very of the time um, language, you know. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, and we can get into it. But when we discuss, and then there were none, um, because the, there were debates about what should be redacted, what should, what should be changed. I, I kind of take the view that not being Jewish, right? So maybe I don't have the right to comment. But there are comments about black people and Kafas in one of her earlier books, which is really offensive. It's like the N word for African black people. And and that was really painful to read from an author I love, but at some point you just think it's important that people realise this is what was in the atmosphere so that you know when shit happens in the 1930s in Europe that it it happened because it was just so normal to normalise anti-Semitic views and and other regressive views, right, not just that, but that's the one that leaps out. Do you guys have anything else you want to say about the novel before I get into the adaptation? I enjoyed it as a first time reader, um,
1: yes. and I look forward to continuing the series because this is going to be a fun reread. Um cool. been a while since I haven't read read it all um, but i enjoyed the story the characters were fun um i actually do really enjoy the british countryside manor setting that was just fun although nowadays it seems cheesy as a detective because uh, you know it's the whole clue thing It's just yeah uh, countryside detective thing but i enjoyed it it was it was nice it was something different for me for once
0: Good. Well, you'll be pleased to know that the next one in our official reread, so that, that we're kind of doing a best of, is Peril at End House, which was written in 1932. So we're skipping forward six years and it's another El Cure Poirot and it is another um, English Country House mystery. So hopefully you'll enjoy that one, too. Um, have any of you seen any of the adaptations of Murder of Roger Ackroyd? I know, Sandy, you haven't had. Have you watched um, the ITV adaptation or heard the Orson Welles radio play?
2: Neither of those, but the uh, BBC radio play of Ah. this.
0: Yeah, that's a really good one it's yeah,
2: very good and um, I love it they're all all the PC ones are I love the way they're dramatized and you know they add in the sound effects and things it really brings
0: it to life and, and they're very, very um, cool. proof the story aren't they they don't mess around with the plot too much which the TV shows can so this was this book was an immediate hit it caused controversy it sold incredibly well Agatha Christie became just incredibly famous on the back of it just a household name in the way that George R.R. R. Martin would have been at the peak of Game of Thrones it just it was in the pop culture this was the Game of Thrones of its time and the twist at the end was the Red Wedding like did people know now everyone knows everyone's world I mean it was that huge Um, it was immediately adapted for the stage so there's a play called Alibi that went on stage in May um, 2028 starring Charles Lawton. He went on to be a very major movie star. It's kind of very different to the book. So basically they make car- the sister much younger and there's a love story between Pa Poirot and Carol Shepard. I'd actually quite like to get a text of that play and read it. It sounds really hilarious. It was adapted by a guy called Michael Morton. Um, It was also turned into a film in 1935, shot by Twickenham Studios, but it's a lost film. It's one of those films that we know existed, but there's no celluloid version of it left to have a look at, which is a shame. Then there's a very famous 1939 Austin Wells radio play in which he plays both Shepard and Poirot because Orson Wells is a nutter. There's the radio, the BBC radio play, which had a reference, which is really good. And if you go to the BBC iPlayer app or the BBC Sounds um, app, you can look, look for it and listen. And it's really great. And then finally, in the year 2000, a British TV channel called ITV um, had David Suchet, who's a really good actor, uh, doing all of the Poirot novels, and they did an adaptation. It's really weird because adapting, to your point, Xander, adapting this for the screen, like how do you show Poirot investigating but not show what he's thinking about stuff? Because you can't have Dr. Shepard narrate a TV story. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting to see how they get around that. It's, it's, it's kind of a very faithful one. So if anyone's listening to this and doesn't want to read the book, even though we've spoiled it completely, you could go back and watch that yep. because it's really well done. And that, again, if you go to the ITV hub, which is what they call their online site, you can watch it for free, but with adverts. You can also get the BBC
2: radio plays on Audible.
0: Oh, okay, cool.
2: So they're listed under uh, uh, ProRose Finest Cases and then more of, Poirot's finest cases it's an anthology of, I think there's about 12 to 14 in each one
0: Okay, dokie I think that's all I wanted to say I really love love this novel I think there are better there's better to come I hope it's wet your appetites if you're listening and I hope it's wet your appetites, Ander. Um it's been so nice I've done these little mini pods on my yeah. own it's nice to have some partners in crime to discuss the stuff with to use the Tommy, Tommy and Tuppence phrase <laughs> But it okay. would change. Thanks for reading and thanks for joining and whenever you guys I mean have a break have a Kit Kat whenever you guys get round to reading Parallel and House let me know and we can we can chat about that. but it was so fun talking to you today. I'm ready for Parallel and House.
1: I've been avoiding your mini pods besides the um intro mini bio I guess one cuz I listened to that before I read the book and I didn't listen to the other ones cuz you know I wanted to read the book and not hear all the stuff from the other ones. But no, I'm. I think this was a perfect introduction for me. I'm so excited.
0: Oh, I'm so pleased. I mean, you can the mini pods don't spoil those books. And all I would say is the mini pods. If you if you listen, not that you need to listen from now because there's a lot of them, but they will give you echoes of what I've been talking about on this one and what I'm trying to do with the mini pods is only talk about the books that we've read so far as a group so nothing gets spoiled for the future so you can safely listen to them and not learn the ending of Murder on the Orient Express ever I'm gonna do a mini pod next which isn't on a book but is on one of the big mysteries of Agatha Christie's life so shortly after she wrote and published Murder of Roger Ackroyd and before she wrote the next book she disappeared for a couple of weeks when she discovered her husband was having an affair and the entire country was looking for her. It's like if George RR Martin had disappeared off the face of the planet, just after the Red Wedding episode of Game of Thrones, and the whole of America was, like, out there with mobile phones just trying to find where he was. And it's this huge mystery, even to this day, what happened to her and what she was up to. Um, So I'm going to do a little mini-pod explaining that, and then we will all chime in together for Peril and House. But in the meantime, I will be, because I'm a completionist, as you all know from the Song of Ice and Fire ridiculous linear reread, I am (laughs) going to (laughs) be... I am going to do mini pods in the middle stories. So between now and Peril at, Ed ha- Periled at End House, the books are The Big Four, The Mystery of the Blue Train, The Seven Dials Mystery, The Murder at the Vicarage, um, and... Uh, the Sitterford mystery so if any of you out there want to join a mini pod on any of those books um, do let me know I think probably the one of those that I think is probably the more more popular is the mystery of the blue train which is a a Hercule Poirot one so if anyone wants to join me for that let me know on the discord and the other play the other one that I think some people might want to join or is notable is the murder at the vicarage which is the first Miss Marple one but I think most people think that murder of Roger Ackwood was really good and then she kind of wrote some stuff that was good but not quite as good. And then Peril at House is the time to come back in. So um, see you for a big podcast then. But always happy to have people on the mini pod too. Um, have a wonderful, wonderful time, and I'll speak to you all soon. Bye. Bye Bina. Bye.